Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Arbilla, the lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange, where we specialize in helping clinicians in private practice become the clinicians that they want to be. We have one-on-one and group mentoring for those who value coaching and guidance on how to apply a BPS approach to their practice and how to manage the many challenges that come along when working with humans who have pain. If interested, reach out at tkex.org. So I've got a special guest today from across the world, Mr. Noah Mandel. He's a physio uh, and just in his final year, if I'm not mistaken, and he's been putting out, that's awesome, mate. It's it's, um, been an absolute pleasure watching some of the content from his Instagram, his TikTok uh, and YouTube. He's got a lot of courage and bravery to put out some really inspiring content to make pain and injury these complex emergent phenomena as simple as possible. So that takes a lot of work and I'm keen to dive into his story and um, feel inspired by his journey so far. So Noah, thank you so much for making the time for us. Thank you. That was a great intro. I appreciate it. You're, yeah, my you're pleasure more than welcome. It's um, cool. like I said, it's been awesome seeing you and, and I'm keen to, to hear a little bit more about your story and your background. Cool. Uh, so I am born and raised in Toronto, Canada. Uh, I just graduated physiotherapy school, as we mentioned. So I will be practicing within the next 10 days or so. Uh, I have started being pretty active on social media, as, as you mentioned. And that sort of came about because when I was doing my undergraduate degree, I fell for so much nonsense on social media, whether it came to nutrition or physiotherapy or fitness, I believed anything that sounded scientific, even if it was complete nonsense. Uh, And it was painful when I realized that I was wrong about everything that I was pretending to be an expert, not pretending, but thinking that I was an expert in. Uh, And it was a big process with unlearning everything uh, and then really starting from the ground up and, you know, trying to learn how what is the best approach to go about learning things and how do we critically appraise the material that we're consuming? Uh, So that's sort of my journey. And now that I feel like I've started to get a hang of that, I want to help spread some of the things that I learn on social media so that maybe people don't have to go through as painful of a journey that I had to go through. Mate, that's so cool. I I definitely resonate with getting sucked into a fair share of rabbit holes and being um, influenced by the influencers who sound very appealing and have the authority bias and anything that, you know, sounds legit and scientific. It's so easy to get hooked on to and, and yeah. fused with those narratives and stories. So um, could you give some, if obviously respecting, um, uh, it, I personally feel a bit embarrassed when I talk about the things that I got sucked into so as much as you're willing to talk about, <laughs> what were some yeah. of the, the, the narratives that, that you had um, come across? Yeah, I'm wondering how much I should embarrass myself here. <laughs> um, I know it's not a nutrition podcast and I'm not a nutrition expert, but any, any bad myth about nutrition and anybody in the nutrition space who's a true expert who says not to follow these people, I followed all of those people and I listened to everything they said. Uh, so I thought that carbs were terrible for you. Uh, I thought that sugar was the devil. I thought that you only should eat natural foods. When it came to fitness and physiotherapy, which, you know, is more relatable, obviously, it was things like demonizing certain postures, uh, muscle imbalances leading to pain and dysfunction. A big one is doing exercises wrong and that whatever that means and that leading to injury. Uh, So those I think pieces of information are way more common and way easier to find on social media. Uh, And I guess that's what came to me first. And I didn't get counter arguments to that until I I really dug a little bit more. So uh, I I think if you name a pseudoscientific claim, chances are that I fall for it at some point. Yeah. Embarrassed to say, but you know, that's, that's what um, makes us grow. Right. It really is. And it's, um, shows a lot of, uh, humility and, and honesty to reflect now on, um, the, also the, the, what was happening around us, the processes, how you mentioned how easy it is to come mm. across some of these, um, claims. And I sense that 
the marketing around those claims, it's so much easier to be emotionally grabbing and of attention when there is, you mm. know, the, the classic red cross and green ticks of the exercise of this is bad and evil and unsafe and you'll explode if you do this. And this is good. And this is what you should do. And it's morally superior. And you need right. to like identify with this and do it right and correctly. And, you know, for sure. The identifying thing is a huge point, right? It's that you want to identify with the right thing. And unfortunately we think so black and white. So we obviously just want to gravitate towards what has that big check mark on it. Yeah. It's, um, and it's the, I feel like, um, the, it's easier to search up these types of content because there's a saturation of them. They're easier and simpler to, to communicate to the layperson, And I'm sure you've seen it with your friends, family, and, and even colleagues. That's just yeah. so easy to get, uh, come across that in your newsfeed. There's so much more of the, the black or white, the, the red ticks and the green crosses, the, the green ticks and the red crosses. Right. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. What, um, it, on that note, what, what were some of the, the turning points that you had looking back now at, um, being exposed to, you mentioned um, some counter arguments and mm-hmm. what, what, what helped you um, reflect and take a step back on some of those claims? Because I imagine social media by itself can be quite tricky to, to navigate. And it's yeah. almost sometimes by chance that you come across a, a, a counter argument. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, was, I was fortunate because the way that I came across it was from people that have big followings as well. And I think those people are pretty rare, the ones that are disseminating really good information, but have large accounts. And that started with nutrition. Uh, so it started with people like Lane Norton uh, and Ben Carpenter. Those were two like very big names I came across pretty early on. And they helped show me that not everything on social media is true. And I need to critically think about the, uh, the things that um, I'm consuming. And from that point on, it was easier for me to start beginning to learn about fitness and about physiotherapy because I already learned from my nutrition state. So it wasn't my, my opinions weren't drastically changed very quickly when it comes to fitness and physiotherapy, because uh, I, I feel like I was able to build a little bit more slowly from the ground up there, as opposed to needing to tear everything down when it came to nutrition. Does that make sense? Yeah, so it's it's a lot easier to um, go sideways and and think of a, a I guess a reframing what you were coming across as opposed to um, getting that so much that existential crisis of like everything I know is bullshit and wrong and you need yeah. to start from like the step zero in in right. your nutritional knowledge. So it seemed like um, there was it was a lot easier to make that step. There were less kind of costs involved for you to make that step um i'm I'm comparing to say if you were a nutritionist or a dietitian and you had clients and you had been practicing this way and it was like in your brand that would have been a little bit harder i imagine for sure for sure yeah and it it was much easier to just understand at that point that it's okay to be wrong and Mm -hmm. it's okay to change your mind about things because i had already done that so then when i had to learn that you know, it's okay to have, it's okay to slouch in a chair. It's not mm-hmm. going to blow your discs out if you do that. It's okay and maybe inevitable to lift with a flex spine when it comes to something like a deadlift. All of that was much easier to, to change my mind about when I came across that sort of information. And I'm now at a point where I seek out counter arguments to what I'm learning. Yeah, well, so, that's a, yeah. almost the opposite of uh, the way that I guess university teachings generally go about exams and assignments where there is uh, you're being marked specifically on there is one answer or there is a correct answer and there are also incorrect answers. So the kind of schooling system doesn't necessarily seem to facilitate this kind of thinking of like, oh, well, let's test out the correct answer. That's like almost do the opposite and prove ourselves wrong and like seek disconfirming evidence to this Mm -hmm. for sure and i and there i feel like physio school gets a lot of hate from a lot of physios for doing that same thing in my experience university of toronto where i graduated from was overwhelming like not overwhelmingly but for the most part very good 
at many different things. And I, I saw a post today that was saying physio school is a waste of time. And I really don't agree with that. Uh, I also don't think that it's what we should put 100% of our effort in if we want to be great physios. I think the learning just begins at physio school. Not everything you learn will be true. Uh, but to the point that you mentioned where testing was what, like what, either a right or wrong answer, in our program, the exams were mainly designed to make you think critically. And that was a big pillar of our, uh, our curriculum was to make sure that we always understand that there's not one right answer, but there might be a better answer. So oftentimes our exam questions would have a bunch of answers that you could rationalize uh, as being decent choices when it comes to clinical decision-making. But there were maybe two or three answers that you would have to select that were better than the rest. And, you know, it's it's difficult to make an exam like that and to write an exam like that because you get a question wrong and you feel in your heart that you weren't wrong because you could rationalize the answer. But I would prefer that over this black and white way of testing that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, there's... um. The idea of it being on a less wrong answer as opposed to the the one correct answer, um, and finding ways to to look at your reasoning behind the answer as well, and and spending time there. I think that, that's mm-hmm. awesome because there is that adaptability according to the person and their context, as opposed to just say you know this is X Y Z condition, this is the framework and the protocol. This is stage one. What was stage two? It's like, oh, well, depends on how stage one went and like their goals and their current capacity and all this other information that you're not giving me, but I'll, you know, I'll be black and white just for this particular exam. It was a bit more open-ended, it seemed, in your experience. Yeah, it was for sure. I mean, the licensing exam was not, it was Mm -hmm. awful. It's terrible. Don't even get me started about the licensing exam in Canada, but it's definitely not the case there. Yeah. 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 And, um, out of curiosity with the, the kind of uh, curriculum that you experienced, um, what were some of the, the MSK musculoskeletal and pain um, topics, frameworks that mm. you had uh, covered? And did you notice uh, similarities, differences as well with what you come across with social media when it comes to these topics? Mm-hmm. Uh, there were similarities. There were differences. Uh, again, it's not as if school gets everything wrong. Uh, it is, I feel for the people that run the curriculum and the professors because things are constantly changing and they have their professors, their clinicians. It's really difficult to stay on top of literally everything. As a student, it's really easy to stay on top of everything because it's your job. That's all you're doing at that point. Uh, things that I think school did really, really well were uh, the pain science curriculum was excellent at University of Toronto. They did a really good job of, of teaching about the different types of pain profiles, of giving case studies of certain patients and making you think how much of this is nociception or for the people listening that like, you know, maybe big words are a bit aversive, just like a, uh, a, a pain that is caused by real tissue damage. How much of this is plastic? You know, how much of it is the nervous system being sensitive and how much of it is neuropathic, which is like nerve damage uh, and and the pain that's being caused by that. Uh, So they did an excellent job with the pain science. Uh, They did a good job at right away teaching us that manual therapy is nonspecific in nature. That was the first lesson about manual therapy. Uh, The the low back pain was very great because they went to nonspecific low back pain and we discussed about how all of the, uh, how the treatment can't just be uh, fixing their posture or strengthening their core, but a lot of it has to be about communication. If there are these psychosocial factors going on, and most of the time there aren't. Uh, what, what I think the curriculum could have done better in is I think overall there's this emphasis on specificity. And sometimes being very specific is important, but a lot of the time we see that there isn't a best exercise to fix a treatment or to, uh, to help a condition. Um, there isn't always one best thing to do. And when it comes to manual therapy, as an example, the effects of it are non-specific in nature. So do we really need to be so specific with our techniques? 
So I think the theory that school would teach was really, really great overall. And then we would get into the practical labs and we would be learning these hyper-specific techniques, overanalyzing posture and movement. So that I think was my biggest issue with the curriculum. Having said that, our professors, when they would teach us these techniques, they would always say, you might notice something off of their posture that may or may not be an issue. You might notice a weird movement that may or may not be an issue. So they were constantly reiterating that and critical thinking was again, a key pillar of the curriculum. So yeah, I, I guess that's a good start for, for that. If you have any other questions, cause I'm kind of rambling. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's so, um, so relevant with the, the new grads, the, the students and the newer clinicians out there and what I hear in um, university circles where you get the um, tutors that are teaching ultrasound for pain related conditions. And they like, you can see it in their facial expressions and their tone of voice that they even know that it's, you know, not really the most evidence-based option and they probably would never choose it in their imagination if they were in clinical practice, but they kind of almost have to do it. So like begrudgingly going through the curriculum and like, uh, it's almost like a history lesson and then, and it's going through mm. maybe w- in which particular context might there be some evidence for it. Um, but I, like, I feel like it's, it just takes so much longer to um, kind of replace that and, and restart or, or do something instead. There's a lot of work needed on their part to update the curriculum. So I can, yeah. I can, I can see where, where the difficulties and the challenges are for educators in this space, that it's not as easy as, you know, all right, let's, let's, you know, update the curriculum. There's new evidence, new guidelines. There's, there's a whole history of, you know, researchers behind them that have used certain modalities and interventions. And then there is the um, demand from private practices that still use some of these interventions. And so, if the university was trying to make their graduates as employable as possible, they need to kind of cater to all of these different uh, parties and uh, stakeholders, we'll say. What, what's your take on, on what you've heard in, on the other side of the world? Because I could be completely different over here in Australia. Yeah, uh, I, I would agree with that. I think it's interesting to think about wanting to make the students employable. I think overall for us, they a big goal of the curriculum is to get us to pass the national exam, which will have things like ultrasound on it. It will have things like uh, these sort of outdated treatments that we know now have a lot of evidence against them, but they're still on the national exam. So we still have to learn them. I think it is a really good point because ultimately it's not just purely what these educators decide to put in the curriculum. There are things that they have to keep in mind, like making their students employable or like getting them to pass a national exam. So it's unfortunate that it's not based off of how do we educate these people the best, but there's all these other logistics that have to be kept in mind. Like, again, like how do we make this person just pass instead of how do we make them a great clinician? Yeah, so there's almost um, there's two kind of overlapping circles, and there's I'm sure there's plenty of overlap where it's helpful to understand a little bit more about mechanisms and how things without as much supportive evidence can still be helpful in some contexts for different reasons. Right. Um, and having that that skill set to be able to use certain modalities or interventions, and then at the same time, if we're looking at what makes a great clinician maybe there's also different definitions there depending on who you're talking to and what sources of information they're using as well based on their context and their demands in in their clinical scenarios that they they go over right that's a good point and with your out of curiosity with your clinical placements or what you've seen in in practice um coming across a university and also all the differences of opinions or the, the camps in social media? What, how have you kind of made sense so far of, of the differences in opinions and all the, yeah, we'll, we'll keep with the, the camp. I'm, I'm using quotation marks as well when I say camps, the kind of, you know, <laughs> dichotomous black or white, you're either all or nothing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the way I, I navigate that is whenever 
I hear something, I never take it at face value at this point in my life anymore. Uh, and that's been very helpful for me. I think for a lot of people, they might get annoyed by it because sometimes they want to tell me something and I, I, I just can't accept things right away. Uh, I, I can't operate like that anymore because I've made that mistake before and I have to take what they're saying to me with a lot of consideration. Uh, whether or not, like, uh, no matter how much I want to believe it, even if it fits my biases, I still need to take a step back and, and reflect on what they're telling me. Um, so I have come across a lot of conflicting things, whether it's on social media or whether it's in clinical practice. So I think personally, I'm at a good point where I'm able to sort of put up this barrier, the shield against misinformation but I guess it's more interesting to discuss for a lot of the students that might be listening to this. Like, how do you go about ethically or not ethically, but sort of like in a political way, talking to these people uh, that are telling you something that you wholeheartedly disagree with? Uh, so that that's sort of an interesting conversation. I have had that in my clinical placements, which is it can be really difficult because you want to speak your mind, but you don't want to get you know, bad grade or, or bad evaluation from these people. Uh, so, and, and, and the same probably happens with a lot of coworkers. I, I think you're in a very small clinic yourself, so you're probably fortunate to, to not have to deal with that anymore, but maybe you did at some point. Absolutely. There's, um, I, I still, you know, argue with myself a lot and disagree with myself, but no, that's I'm very much <laughs> in a privileged position um, to have full autonomy. And I think that's a very important consideration that the, the kind of needs in the a context of clinical placement where you need a pass and also the needs of a business where you need to have some kind of cohesion and um, teamwork. You, you, you can't, you know, do the complete, I guess you can. And there's clinics out there that you can have different narratives and they can still coincide and work together collaboratively um, at, However, it, it can be very challenging if, yeah, either your supervisor or your employer is using some outdated claims and narratives and you can see the, the, the costs or the, the cons as well as the pros and you're like, okay, how do I, how do I have a conversation in the first place? Um, you know, respecting that you need your grades and you also need to get paid and, and you know, be employable back to that term. So yeah, how would you say for, for the students out there in, in their final years or they're coming across placement or supervision and they don't really agree with what the, the clinician is, is, is saying or doing, how can they manage those situations? Hmm. I think for me, what was helpful and, you know, this is just me, it, it might not work for everybody, but what I found to be helpful was to assume that I'm wrong and to really listen to them. Otherwise, it's probably going to be confrontational. You just really want to step into that person's shoes and, and try to truly understand where they are coming from. Because if you want to change their mind, that's never going to happen if you tell them immediately that they're wrong and you don't believe what they're telling you. That's not a useful way to go about communicating with people. So assume that you're wrong because there's a great chance you are. And if you're not wrong about this, you're going to be wrong about other things. So it's safe to assume that in a lot of instances, you'll be wrong. And then from there, you could have a more open conversation with them. Uh, and you could approach the conversation from where we're sort of exploring their ideas a bit more. And you could challenge them slightly. I wouldn't say in, in very strong ways. Uh, but if they say something like, you know, this low back pain is due to a weak cord, you could say something like, how do you know that in a respectful way? And see where they say. Sometimes, and I think this is a bit optimistic and maybe a bit of a fantasy, but maybe people will come across errors in their own thinking when they're explaining things to you. So that's one potential way. Sometimes I'll leave a conversation where it is and I'll come back to it the next day and say, hey, I was researching what we spoke about last night. I found this article. Let me know what you think about it. And that had happened uh, with one of uh, the people that I had worked with in one of my placements. They didn't seem too open to the uh, to what was in the article. So at that point, I did I did what I could. I felt like I satisfied 
my desire to try and uh, change this person's mind about something that I disagreed with. It didn't really work. And that's okay. Uh, you're not going to win every single battle. Uh, but I, I, again, I, I can't stress this enough. I, I don't think we're going to change anybody's minds by being aggressive and by insulting them. So that, that's my main advice to students. Don't be afraid to, to be a little bit combative, but in a friendly way and in a curious way where you're truly trying to understand the person you're speaking to. Amazing and so applicable to even new grads and employees or people who come across maybe colleagues with differing opinions that first seek to understand where they're coming from so you can empathize and find out a little bit more. It's, it's funny, you can even do that with patients that come in with unhelpful beliefs and they talk about, you know, they need their posture right when they're sitting and what and you find out through reflective listening, what they're actually saying is they're sitting down for a long time and they just want to move. And it's like, oh, yeah. okay. So <laughs> I'm so glad I didn't, you know, I have all these copied and pasted links about how posture is, you know, has been debunked and um, just about to prove you wrong. But now I'm, I'm, I better understand where you're coming from. And we can have that same approach with a colleague that maybe it's more once you find out, oh, that's what you mean by this narrative or this definition of, of core. And you're, just, you're saying like in general, strength training can be very helpful. And they're not actually saying specifically what we're hearing, which is, you know, mm. low, uh, you know, low back pain is caused by a weak core. They're saying strength training is, is helpful. So I think having that, assuming we're wrong can be a very helpful, a very helpful frame and lens to start a conversation rather than, you know, oh, actually the research says this because that mm. just deters them away from you <laughs> yeah. and from that conversation, right? Right. It's so annoying for people to, to have to come across that. They, they think that you're a smart ass. And I think it's so natural for you to want to blurt out everything you know about why they're wrong and just make them feel like an idiot. And it just really would feel great for your ego, but that's all it would do at the end mm. of the day. Uh, and that's easier said than done because again, I think it's the natural instinct, but we, we just have to do our best, I think, to take a breath and take a step back and, and to practice doing this uh, because it's going to be a long career. And if you feel like you never speak your mind, I don't think you'll be happy doing what you do. Yeah. Yeah. There's um, finding uh, ways to have these conversations that um, can help you express what you're, you're thinking without coming across as it's me against you. It's that confrontation. Mm -hmm. It's, it's more of a collaboration and you mentioned the word curiosity. So evoking mm -hmm. that curiosity and then uh, I, I noticed as soon as there was no response or there was like a unhelpful response, you, you knew that it wasn't your responsibility to change this person's mind. Right. And you tried. Like, what what and, can I do at that point? That's really hard to accept. So I think it's helpful to, to hear that out loud that um, there are going to be clinicians that refuse to or have, don't have the um, necessary maybe support and resources around them to change. So they're, they're just based on the context, they, they have no reason to change. And that's really difficult, I, I imagine, for, uh, for new grads and students to hear when we are so passionate about promoting evidence-based, you know, less wrong narratives. But then there are clinicians out there that, that don't want to or don't need to. They don't see a need to update. Right. Yeah. I, I think maybe people could also find comfort in the idea that maybe just because you didn't change their minds today, maybe you planted a seed. And five years down the road, this example that I bring up, for example, was about subacromial impingement. Uh, and they were giving me the classic, uh, you know, pathoanatomical description of subacromial impingement, and that the supraspinatus tendon is getting ripped up by the acromion. And I sent them a systematic review. I forget when it came out. I think it was last year, but it was the one that was basically, um, uh, it showed that there wasn't a relationship between the distance between the acromion and, uh, or there was basically, there wasn't a good relationship between pain and the size of the subacromial sub space. Uh, and I think throughout the years, it's going to be more and more common for people 
to understand that maybe what we thought about subacromial impingement wasn't the case as it was 10 or 20 years ago. So as this person that I was speaking to comes across more and more information or potentially more students that they have in their, in their clinic, question their beliefs, maybe that seed that you planted will help grow into something bigger. And, and maybe ultimately they will change their mind. So I think just because you didn't change their mind today doesn't mean that it was a waste of time and that you should feel discouraged. You still did what you wanted to do and you were not trying to, you know, hurt his feelings. You're just trying to, you know, help, help push the profession forward. Yep. That little nudge, that small step, inspiring some curiosity to reflect on the, the, the narratives or the beliefs or the claims and plant the seed as opposed to think that we can just have that aha moment. And then suddenly they change in, you know, just one conversation that often never happens in general, even reflecting on our, how we've changed our minds on things that it's often a process, right? It takes yeah. a bit longer to get more information and, and, you know, change our opinions on certain topics. So to think that sure. we could change someone who's been practicing in their entire, you know, worldview in one conversation might be a, a bit too much of our own expectations of what might happen. Absolutely. It's like what you were saying earlier about a dietitian who now has to change their mind about something they've been preaching to their clients for years now. This person has been speaking about subacromial impingement to people for years. And also when they give them treatments for subacromial impingement, a lot of their patients get better. It's just not necessarily for the reasons that they believe. So it becomes even harder to start refuting these ideas because their, their beliefs are never questioned in their practice because they get results, whether or not that's due to natural history or regression to the mean or because of mechanisms that we don't fully understand. Yeah, yeah. All, all these other reasons on top of what they think is going on. And, and I think that we can use that same exercise on ourselves when we think that, say, strength training or any particular intervention that we do is the reason why someone gets better. So mm -hmm. uh, I, I really love the, the filters that you have for finding out, like, how do we know is one of the questions that you asked. Um, mm -hmm. I'm curious with the, the filters, and I think it's helpful for students and, and newer clinicians to have that uh, understanding of what filters or like reflect on our own uh, processes and methods that we use um, ourselves to come to our current understanding and current beliefs. Where, where did you get your filters from of, of information? How do you filter information now, now that you've come across some critical thinking frameworks and mm -hmm. all these questions that you have? Yeah. So I think on social media, I've come across people that promote critical thinking in the physiotherapy and the fitness space. And also when you go to physio school, I don't know if this was the case in other programs, but it's an ongoing joke in, in our program of just the phrase, it depends, uh, just because it's truly like, we would ask a question and the answer is always, it depends. I think some, uh, some graduating class in recent years got that on their graduating sweaters or something. Yeah, context uh, matters. Yeah, it yep. always matters. And, and some people really hate that term when they go to physio school because they just want the answers. For me, I loved it because I had already made the mistakes in the past of thinking that everything was black and white. So now when I start hearing, it depends on like, yes, okay, we're, we're thinking critically here. You know, we're, we're understanding for who and for what this might be good for. So that's another one of my filters, I think, for who and for what. And I think I got that from uh, Eugene Teo. He's a, a pretty popular uh, fitness influencer, if we could call him that. I don't know how he feels about the term influencer, but nonetheless, uh, he, he's pretty great because he, he gets people to think a little bit deeper about what he's saying and about that, the, the exercises that they're doing. Uh, so just when somebody says something like a, a barbell back squat is the best exercise, the first thing that should come to mind is for who and for what and, and when as well, because maybe it's good for one person for strengthening but maybe they're dealing with a knee injury right now and it's not the best time so maybe further along the recovery process it could be a great exercise uh for who is should everybody be barbell back squatting 
maybe, maybe not. Let's dissect that idea a little bit more. And these are things that you should be doing in your own mind when people are, are giving you these black and white statements. Because sometimes these black and white statements, they may be true, but in a very small population of people. So uh, don't, don't accept everything at face value and take some time to, to really ask, like, who is, who is this for? What is this for? What will, it, what will the, the treatment or this exercise or this, uh, you know, like pain neuroscience education piece, like who will this be good for and, and in what settings? Don't take everything at face value. Sometimes things work very well. Sometimes they're not appropriate for people. That's so awesome. that's, my, the that's my main filter. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. The, the, um, what is the claim and who might it be helpful for and at which, which kind of context might it be useful? And also for our own beliefs and when might it not be as helpful for, and for who might it not be as helpful and in which particular context. So having that deeper dive into the, the, um, the claim and when it might be helpful and when it might be unhelpful to ask the right questions. And that goes for, for everything as well. So applying the same filter to our current beliefs and what we want to be true. We, you know, Mm -hmm. still have that kind of, um, I I don't know about you. I feel that sense of righteousness that, you know, we, we need to promote the good stuff and, and this is the correct way. And there's a certain sense of pride towards um, my current understanding um, and, and confidence in my beliefs. So when questioning my own beliefs, I notice sometimes feelings of like, no, that's bullshit. Or like there's a mm-hmm. defensive backfire effect. So being mm-hmm. aware of how we respond to when our own beliefs and understandings are questioned and applying the same questions that we would to say a belief that we're more skeptical about. Right. For sure. Yeah. It can be painful to apply them to your own beliefs for sure. And it can be very difficult. I think just being mindful in general can be very helpful. And it's, I'm not saying these things like I'm perfect. It's that when I notice I'm making a mistake, these are the things that I've noticed to be helpful for me and just being a little bit more mindful, just noticing my thoughts and realizing, Oh my God, I've been saying this one thing for five years and I've never evaluated whether or not it's a good idea. Uh, so just taking some time to, to not try and be right about everything, but to just try and reflect about where you are right now. Are, are you on the right path? Because again, as I said earlier, it's, it's very likely that we're currently wrong about a lot of things. So just assume that a lot of what you know is, is wrong and that it's okay. You don't need to identify with these beliefs. Just try to try to just seek the truth. Because I think that's just what we should be motivated for at the end of the day, not being right, but just trying to get better. There's a bit of a difference there between going after the truth and always being right. Because I think in your own mind, you can tell yourself you're right if you never dissect these thoughts. But these things might not necessarily be true if if they're never challenged. Absolutely. There's um, a lot of uh, our identities can get caught up in having certain interventions or modalities or uh, ways of thinking. And then, so when we apply these filters or we hear these filters of like, when is it helpful? When is it unhelpful? It's not only does it feel like we're questioning our beliefs. It feels like we're questioning ourselves Mm -hmm. because we identify as those beliefs. Awesome. That's um, so helpful to hear. And it's also really useful to have role models like yourself and like Eugene to see some more examples online and in, in social media where it can be very much um, you, as content creators, generally with the way the algorithm supports controversy, it's easier mm-hmm. to get more likes and more following with the dichotomous black or white, not so nuanced point of views. So out of curiosity with your social media experience so far, what, what's that been like for you as a, as a student and, and entering the world of private practice or, or clinical practice rather? Mm-hmm. So when you, do you mean what's my experience with sort of posting or with navigating social media? Yeah. Um, in general, as a, maybe as a content creator for, for the new grads and the students listening who are interested and curious whether or not to step in to the space in the first mm-hmm. place. What, yeah. What's been, what's been the, the, the pros and cons from your experience? 
there have been, I don't think there have been any cons. Um, and I'm not saying that there never will be, uh, but I, I've had a very great experience with posting. And I think the first thing to say about that is all of the fears that you have right now that are preventing you from creating an account and posting are probably irrational. And I say that from my own experience where I had all the fears of what if I'm judged? What if I get all these nasty comments? What if I'm wrong? Uh, and you just start posting and you might suck at first and that's okay because you're never good at anything right away. Uh, and I definitely still have a, like a long way to go personally of where I want to be when it comes to how I present my information on social media. It's a process and it should be looked at it as such. It shouldn't be looked at as you start posting and you immediately get a result because it's going to take some time until you build a larger following and you're really helping to change the minds and help to educate other people. Some of the biggest things that I've gotten out of social media, I've, I've gotten some appreciative comments from some clinicians and from students and from some people that have been patients in the past. And those are lovely. They're heartwarming. And I was sort of expecting those. That's why I started to post. I wanted to just share some of the things I know with people, share my experiences, hope that they're helpful for people. What I wasn't expecting as much, and this is perhaps just because I didn't think about it enough, was that how, how great it would be for me for connecting with other clinicians, some well-respected clinicians, clinicians all over the world, like yourself, like with all these people that now follow me and I follow now and I have messages with back and forth. I now can just see guidance with these people on my phone that I, I've built some relationships with. And it's incredible. It's so cool. It's really, really cool. I wasn't expecting the physio network thing. So for those listening, I've recently begun creating content for physio network, which is a company that creates research reviews and masterclasses based off of the newest research. I wasn't expecting to be working for other people um, when it came to creating content, but I just tagged them on one of my posts and uh, Kevin who works for physio network reached out to me and the rest is history. So I guess you, you never really know where it will take you. And there's way more good that you could be doing out there if you are a caring, compassionate person who cares about sharing great information. I think you're doing us a disservice by holding yourself back, by listening to the thoughts in your head that are telling you not to post. Because I think you just have to get over the hump. And, and don't get me wrong, there are negative comments out there, and I get them as well. Uh, but you just have to look at those things logically. The funniest one, I, I made a post about uh, whether or not you should ice injuries. And this guy commented on my post, nobody gives a fuck. And I, I thought it was hilarious, personally. Because that's not a, it's not a personal attack on me. You can't take those sorts of things personally. You know, because this person, for whatever reason, maybe they're having like a shit day and they're not in the mood for that to pop up on their explore page. But it's not my fault. You know, it's it, it's I don't know. I, I sort of have to just find humor in, in those sorts of things and realize that a lot of the time these things aren't personal attacks. It's just people when they're negative on social media, they have their own shit going on. And you, you can't take it personally. It's, um, it's so hard sometimes to, to separate the content from yourself when you spend so much effort. And I'm making a general statement that there's uh, perfectionist tendencies which are with a lot of high-achieving students and people mm -hmm. in the physio world would, would need or that have found that kind of... Uh, pursuit of excellence to be helpful in their journey so far through schooling. And so then they want to put out really good content and maybe yeah. they're comparing themselves to, you know, the likes of Adam Meekins and Jared Hall and all the, you know, the greats who've been in this industry for like decades and they're just right. like, I, I want to be them now. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise yeah. I'm not worthy. Uh, yeah. And they're also maybe at the same time. So I'm just painting the, the whole picture in my mind, at least of like, they see, um, maybe some counter arguments that are a bit 
nasty, like uh, a few yeah. people calling out and having personal attacks. And they're like, I don't want to get caught up in that bubble as well. Yeah. I, I, I'm afraid yeah. of posting for, cause I might be wrong and I'm afraid of posting cause I might get called out. What would you mm-hmm. say in, in those contexts and situations? It's a tough one. Yeah, for sure. Um, have you, have you ever seen Goodwill hunting? Ooh, my memory would need to be revamped a little bit, but tell us more. It, it's one of, one of my favorite movies. If you haven't seen it, I, I highly suggest it. It's with, uh, uh, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon and Robin Williams. It's, it's an awesome movie. Uh, in, in the movie, Matt Damon, uh, is like this sort of young guy and he's seeing a therapist, Robin Williams. And I know the characters names because I've seen this movie way too many times, but, uh, Will, who's Matt Damon in the movie, is telling Sean, who's Robin Williams, his therapist, about how he just met an amazing girl. Uh, and he thinks that she's perfect, but he's not calling her back. And Sean, the therapist, is asking, why are you not calling her back? And he basically says, oh, she's perfect right now. Why? And Will's a very smart guy. He's like, if I call her back and I start dating her, I'm going to realize that there's things that are wrong with her. So why would I want to mess that up? And Sean says something along the lines of like, oh, I think that's a great philosophy. Well, that way you can go about your whole life, not, not needing to get to know anybody ever. And I, I like that a lot for when it comes to avoiding posting on social media. It's, it's not going to be, and it's not just social media. It's really anything in life where you're just stepping out of your comfort zone. Things are not going to be perfect. And if you expect them to be, your expectations are going to be crushed and that will be way more painful. You have to understand that things are not always going to be just rainbows and, and, and bunnies and, and things are going to sometimes be hurtful. And if you have that expectation, it might make it a little, more, little bit more palatable. And I think if you expect things to go perfect, then you're going to be sort of paralyzed by that desire for, to be perfect and you're you're not going to make as much progress as you could if you just took the leap and you just went for it importantly in that scene they also go on to discuss how sean's wife who had passed away farts in her sleep and that's his favorite thing about her and the point of that is to say that it's okay for things not to be right if you're on social media and you post something and it's wrong good don't don't look at it like oh this is bad because i was wrong think it's good to learn and you learn when you're wrong don't think oh i have to get everything right just say oh it's good to be humbled it's good to practice humility so that that's really what i would say for the most part i I think we have to stop chasing this perfectionism because it's just not realistic in any area of life uh, and it's understandable and it's something that I combat as well as like a physio student, this person who wants to achieve great things, but uh, you, you don't achieve any great things by, by not doing. That's right. It's um, so, a little bit of tough love. Yeah. Yeah. That's acknowledging that the, there will be some ups and downs in the journey. And if we are acknowledging our fears, we can have the fears and still share the experiences and the learnings to an audience who will value that and then connect with other clinicians. And it opens up some opportunities for, for more that we don't yet know. So there is that unknown if you're starting out in social media and there's perhaps a a lot more benefits and, and um, reasons to, to inspire, to, to role model, to lead and to make a change. If, if you feel like that is an avenue, for for yeah. it, for promoting less wrong information with the abundance of misinformation out there. I think overall it would be a net positive and it's helpful to have role models like yourself talk about the journey and, and talk about um, the, the positives as well because we often just hear the negatives or we yeah. kind of hear what we want to hear. Especially like, when it comes to social media, you hear a lot of the negatives. And I think there's so many people that might be listening to this or or so many students out there that maybe aren't listening to this that are just not even students, people in general that haven't posted yet, but could, as you said, make that net positive on the world. 
Mm. Maybe you could really help 10 people out there. And I think that is worth making the sacrifice of being wrong and maybe going through some embarrassment. Uh, I, I, I think it's, when you look at it that way, it's a no brainer because maybe you sacrifice yourself, but you help a bunch of other people uh, and you get better at it the more you do it. So, you know, th- th- why not start now? You'll awesome. never be perfect. You'll never, you'll never be, you'll never be Adam Meekins right away. You'll never be perfect right away. So there's no better time to start than now. Amazing. Mic drop moment right there. <laughs> My mic's a bit expensive, but if I could drop it, <laughs> I would. No, it's been amazing. I'm, I'm, I've got one curious question. What, and then I'd love to hear a little bit more about how people can, can reach out to you. Um, with mm-hmm. your journey now, where are you heading towards at, at the moment, early days, um, in terms of specialties, in terms of where you'd like to work or who you'd like to work with? Yeah. Uh, so I haven't signed the contract yet, I, I, but I'm, I'm working at the sports medicine clinic. I'm just unsure if I should say the name right now because mm. I haven't signed the contract, yeah. but yeah. I'll announce it as soon as I do sign the contract. Yeah, uh, but it's a, it's a sports medicine clinic in Toronto, and I'm really excited to be working there. It's a, it's a great clinic. I'm going to be surrounded by people that are very motivated and willing to change their minds and uh, willing to always grow which for me is one of the most important things when it comes to figuring out where I wanted to work. So I'll be beginning that within this month. Uh, The physio network thing is ongoing. I'm looking to continue to just get better at posting on social media and helping to educate people. Uh, So that is sort of where I'm at right now. And yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to, to kicking off my career. So cool. I'm really excited for you and uh, your handles and social media uh, info for the students and new grads and clinicians in general who want to hear more about you. Where can we find you? I think Instagram right now is the best place. Noah Mandel dot physio. That, that right now is the best place. I'm going to try and be more active on other platforms like Facebook, Instagram, or sorry, uh, TikTok, um, potentially Twitter, YouTube, uh, but Instagram right now is where I've had the most success and where you can typically message me if, mm. if you're interested in, in having a chat. Amazing. Mate, yeah. loving your work and really inspiring to hear your story. And um, you've inspired, I'm sure, not only new grads, but clinicians out there in the field already to have that humility and have that um, sense of uh, always continually learning and being open to to change, regardless of how far how much experience you have. So really appreciate your time. Thank you. Dan, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It was such a pleasure and I really appreciate you providing the platform. And and I do hope that we help to uh, inspire some people today.